open up to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John chapter 7. We're going to be doing a part two this morning of a message I began last week, and we kind of had to stop there midway through so we could take our time and run through uh, the rest of our material together. And so John chapter 7, the title of the message this morning is Christ and the Feast of Booths. Christ and the Feast of Booths. So we're in John chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. We're going to spend a majority of our time in verses 1 through 5, but I believe with the Lord's help this morning, we'll also finish verses 6 through 13 to kind of finish out this message this morning. And so the Apostle John writes this, John chapter 7, starting in verse 1, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast, or now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he then also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Father, we pray that as we continue to prepare our hearts for what you have in store for us through this message on Jesus and the Feast of Booths, I pray that you would give us a, a heart to learn this morning that you would help us to, to put on our thinking cap in some ways as we dig through some of these feasts of the Old Testament, that we would be overwhelmed with encouragement and joy as we see how each one of these feasts is pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ, His coming, His death, His resurrection, and His return. And so teach us today what you want us to learn so that we can live in the ways that you want us to live. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, last week we introduced this topic, this sermon, this title, Jesus Christ in the Feast of Booths, and we just kind of started with a reminder of what the Gospel of John is all about. The Gospel of John is all about teaching us to believe. The Gospel of John is all about the love of God. The Gospel of John is all about teaching us Jesus as the Son of God. In fact, the theme verse for this Gospel is John chapter 20, verse 31, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And so what that means is, is everything that we read in the Gospel of John is pointing us to believe in Christ. It's pointing us to see the divinity of Christ, to see the joy of knowing Christ. And this text that we're looking at this morning is no different. Even though we'll look a little bit here at the Feast of Booths, the, the theme for this sermon is I want to share with you three lessons that we can learn from Jesus as he heads to the Feast of Booths. And so last week we started with lesson number one, and we just made the acknowledgement that there is a hard-heartedness in the nature of man. If you look just at verse one, the Jews 
wanted to kill Jesus. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, I shared with you last week, there's about six months' time between what happens here in this chapter and in the Synoptic Gospels, in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We have about six weeks of Jesus' Galilean ministry where we read about him casting out demons, teaching other things, doing various miracles, and he hung around in Galilee where he was from, uh, growing up there in Nazareth, before he eventually headed down south to the Feast of Passover. And so here in this chapter, we're, we're, we're being reminded that he's a little bit more welcomed, if you will, in Galilee, the home of his ministry being Capernaum, than he would be in Judea. And they knew that when he headed down to Judea, heading south uh, on a map, but heading higher, so sometimes it says up to the feast because topographically Jerusalem sits up a little bit higher than Galilee did being below the, the uh, surface of, of sea level. So this is what's going on. He's getting ready to go. He's getting geared up to go, and his brothers want him to come on down. But we see there at the end of verse 1, the Jews were seeking to kill him. And so let's just pause and be reminded, this is a hard-hearted nation. Unbelieving Jews, no different really than unbelieving Gentiles, other than you would expect that since God chose these people, that they would be a little bit more inclined to listen to Jesus, who was a Jew, preach to them about the coming of himself as the Messiah. And needless to say, uh, these Jews don't like it. They don't like the message. The, these Jews in Jerusalem sat at the helm of power. They called the shots. They ran the Jewish religion with a tight fist, and they were out for blood. Forget their commitment to Yahweh. Their only commitment was to their own power, their own control, and their own success. They definitely were a hard-hearted people who rejected Christ, who rejected his teaching, who rejected his claims because of their own hardness of heart. And what they want is they want to get Jesus down in Jerusalem, and they're going to frame him with a lot of false allegations, and they're going to crucify him on a criminal's cross. So it's hard-hearted, these Jewish people. And then we turn to verse 2, and it says, Now the Jews' feast of the booths was at hand. And instead of just kind of glossing over that, we kind of dove in last week, and we're reminded that this is one of three major feasts. Now there are seven feasts in the Old Testament that the Jews were to observe, but only three, according to Exodus chapter 23, were to be observed each and every year with a representative of a male from each household. The first one, you see it there in your notes, was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, also known as the Feast of Passover. It was to take place in March or in April, and it was all about how uh, the Jews being reminded of how they escaped out of the bondage they were in in Egypt. And basically the 10th plague that God did through his deliverer Moses was that the Israelites were to take a lamb kill it, take the blood, put it on the doorpost, and that very night the death angel would come, and if blood covered the doorpost, the death angel would pass over that home and not kill their firstborn. But for all the Egyptians who did not follow this, this means of grace, really, uh, had their firstborn killed. And Pharaoh got so upset about it that he finally sent Israel with Moses and all the Israelites out of Egypt. And as they leave Egypt, they were told to bake bread without any leaven. So they didn't have time for the bread to rise, and so that night they took off. And uh, so this feast, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Breads, to remind us of those two things. Number one, God redeemed his people and brought them out of bondage. That's the Passover. And then the unleavened bread, he did so quickly. When God moves, he moves fast. He may wait 430 years, but when he gets ready to do his work, you better be ready. 
And that's kind of the parable, too, of lighting the lamps, right, with the virgins at the wedding feast. You might be waiting for a long time for God to do something in your life, but you better be ready. Because when God moves, he moves quickly, decisively, and nothing can stop it. So we're to be ready at all times. And the second feast that we looked at last week was the Feast of Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost, also known as the Feast of Harvest or of Weeks. Pentecost, 50, seven weeks plus one, 50 weeks after the unleavened bread or Passover was the Feast of Pentecost. It was also known as the Feast of Harvest because they were harvesting grain. Not produce, but grain. Wheat is uh, sown in the winter, harvest in the springtime, in the late spring. So they were to harvest that and they were to celebrate. And this is really a picture of God's sustaining his people throughout the wilderness and really throughout their lives. If the first feast talked about when they first left Egypt, the second feast talked about God sustaining them with his presence throughout their journey through the wilderness. And then we looked at the third feast, and we'll spend most of our time here looking again at the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths are tabernacles, also called the Feast of Ingathering. This is when they would harvest their crops, mainly produce. It could be grapes, could be olives, could be other crops they would harvest in the fall of the year, September or October. And according to Josephus, this Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles was by far the most popular of these three feasts. And the Feast of Booths was the grand harvest of the festival when Israel would rejoice in the ingathering of the produce of the land. This was the the most joyous occasion and the, the most joyous feast of the year. And this feast was not even celebrated until Israel came into the promised land. So the first feast represents leaving Egypt. The second feast represents their time in the wilderness. Their third feast represents they came into the promised land. They give God great praise, great thanks. And so they build tabernacles, temporary structures. They, they would do it in the town square. They would do it in the suburbs of Jerusalem. They would do it in the streets. They would build these forts, if you will, these outside structures that are temporary just to be reminded, to be reminded that their home used to be temporary, but now it's permanent in God, that in God, through the temple, they see a permanent structure that would be built to represent the permanence of God's love, his commitment to his people. So they would have these feasts. It was a great bit of of fun. They would rejoice in God's goodness to them in every way and how God had provided for them. And it was to be a reminder that, uh, again, that God was bringing them into a permanent dwelling in a relationship with him. Now, again, you may say, well, that's great if you're a Jew. That's great if you're an Old Testament scholar. That's great if you're studying Old Testament history. How can I benefit from that today as a New Testament believer under the New Covenant? So let me give you these three reminders, all three feasts, all three of these, in a general way, remind us to, number one, commemorate God's faithfulness in the past. God is always true to his people. He never has abandoned them or forsaken them even for one minute. And God's faithfulness is from everlasting to everlasting. And God knows you today, and he knows your hurt, and he knows your situation, and he knows your predicament. And we could be reminded today as New Testament believers that we serve the same God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He knows your hurt. And you can think about the way he's always been faithful. He's never left you. He's never abandoned you. He has steadfast love for you this morning. No matter who you are, no matter what you're suffering through, the chesed love of God, the loving kindness, the steadfast love of the Lord is for you in Christ. 
And it never ceases. It never wanes. It never, it never runs out, right? His mercies are new every morning. And so when you think about the Passover, when you think about even Pentecost, and when you think about the Feast of Booths, just remember, God's always been faithful to his people. He'll be faithful to you today through Christ. Second, these feasts were to perpetuate God's grace in the present. And all we're saying is that as we're going through the wilderness of our life, God's grace is sufficient for you today. These feasts are to remind us that though we are weak in Him, we are strong. These feasts are to remind us that it is the joy of the Lord that is our strength. These feasts are to remind us that no matter who you are today, His presence is with you in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then third, these feasts also help us to anticipate the Messiah's coming in the future. All three feasts really point to a greater fulfillment in Christ. It's not just about the history of Israel. It's not just about Israelites leaving Egypt, wandering through the desert, and coming into the promised land. As great as that is, that's just foreshadowing your salvation, foreshadowing your sanctification, and foreshadowing your glorification. The fact that you are moving through this life and we are still anticipating the Messiah who's coming back. And so even though these three feasts mainly were celebrated in the Old Testament to point to Christ's first advent, here in a second I'm going to show you how one of these three feasts is still going to be practiced at Christ's second advent. First, let me just get a little bit more specific. Okay, The next little part there in your outline says each feast specifically pointed to, if it's not clear already, it's a little bit redundant, but let's say it one more time, Passover pointed to what? Christ sacrifice on the cross. That's what it's all about. When the lamb was killed in the Old Testament, that is foreshadowing the lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who has shed his blood for sinners like you and like me. Jesus Christ was crucified. He is the lamb. He is our sacrifice. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is our substitute, and he causes the wrath of God to pass over you because the wrath of God was on Christ on the cross so that you could be forgiven, so that you could have salvation, so that you could be set free of your bondage to sin, and you could be a new man, a new woman in Christ because he has passed over your sin through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Secondly, Pentecost specifically points to Christ's promise in giving the Holy Spirit. So all of these feasts take place in very strategic times. With what we just talked about with Passover, when Jesus comes uh, to be crucified, it happens on Passover weekend. When Jesus uh, talks about the Holy Spirit coming, it happens when? On the Feast of Pentecost. Why? Because Jesus taught us that he would send a helper, the Holy Spirit, who would come in power. And so in Acts chapter 2, when we talk about the day of Pentecost, we're talking about this very fact that 50 days after Christ was crucified, 40 days he remained on earth, and then he ascended, and then 10 days later you have this incredible feast of Pentecost that they were observing, and that's when the Holy Spirit shows up in power. And we read last week in Acts 2, there were tongues of fire. There were unusual things going on. People were speaking in real languages. And if we're here this morning and we read Acts 2, we should be encouraged. There's nothing to be ashamed of in speaking in tongues. They were charismatic for a period right? I mean, this is what was happening. So when we read that, we should be like, yeah, check this out. This is the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, what happens, unfortunately, is some people carry that too far for too long. It was a pointer 
to point to the message of the gospel. People today who classify themselves as charismatics, unfortunately, move away from, sometimes, the gospel message to the gifts. And they forget that the gifts were to point to the giver, Jesus Christ. The fact that people spoke in tongues and that had miraculous gifts was all to point to the authenticity of the message of Jesus Christ and the gospel itself. And what's happened today is some people kind of get lost with Pentecost to where, unfortunately, every time you hear the word Pentecost, you think what? Pentecostal, and then you think charismatic, and then you just kind of get way over here on a tangent and start debating which gifts are for today and which ones aren't. Well, I'm saying forget that for just a moment and just realize Pentecost points to the Holy Spirit who fills every believer, who sustains you through this life, who sustains you through the wilderness, who empowers you to break habitual sin in your life. You can't do it without the Holy Spirit. You can't do anything without the Holy Spirit. And he fills you at salvation. And when you think about Pentecost, think about God sustaining grace through the Holy Spirit in your life to give you victory over sin. Now, the third feast here, the one we're spending most of our time, is the Feast of Booths. And here, in this definition, we're saying it's Christ's kingdom to be set up in the future. It's Christ's kingdom to be set up in the future. Now, understand here, the Jews were waiting for Christ's kingdom to be set up at his first advent. When he came the first time, they wanted him to demolish Rome, to set up a physical kingdom, and to reign as king. And the only thing wrong with that is the timing. That is going to happen. But it happens at Christ's second advent. At his first advent, he wanted to be a spiritual king and to reign in the hearts of his people. And so when the Bible says the kingdom of God is within you, or it's within your midst, the idea is that's the sphere of salvation, of saying that when Christ came, he came to set up as spiritual king in the hearts of his people. The Jews didn't like this message. They didn't appreciate what he's talking about. They only saw the physical fulfillment. They're always focused on externals. They didn't really hear the heart of the message, and so they began to reject him. But there's two other important things about the Feast of Booths that we briefly mentioned last time, and that is there was these rituals that were practiced at the Feast of Booths, namely around the idea of having water and having light. And so first there was a ceremony of the outpouring of water that was drawn from the Pool of Siloam there in Jerusalem. And this was in commemoration of the refreshing stream which had come forth miraculously out of the rock at Meribah. You remember again, as Israel was traveling through the wilderness, they didn't have any water, so they cried out for water. The Lord heard them. Moses struck the rock at Meribah, and the water came forth. Well, that's to point to Christ. Christ is the rock. Christ provides the water, and that's why at this feast, the strategy of this message that when he does show up to the feast a little bit later, he says in John 7, look down to verse 37, on the last day of the feast, on the last day, the, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Here's what I'm saying. Jesus is timing his entrance to the feast on purpose to talk about the fact that he is water and he is light. He provides living water to all. Matters not who you are, where you come from this morning. If you come to Christ, Jesus says, if you're thirsty this morning, aren't you tired of the things of this world? 
Aren't you tired of thinking that if you buy more, experience more, then you'll have more happiness? Because it's just not true. The only way to ever be fulfilled is in Christ. He sustains you. He fills you with great joy. If you're thirsty this morning, come to Christ. And he says, in you will be streams of living water. Not only that, but we also talked about the fact that there's a celebration around light. At this festival, the Feast of Booths, there was an illumination of the inner court of the temple where the light of the grand candelabra reminded the people of the pillar of fire by night, which has served as a guide through the desert. You remember, even when Israel was up against the Red Sea, here comes Pharaoh and his army, and there's a pillar of fire right there holding Pharaoh off while they cross the Red Sea. Throughout the wilderness, pillar of fire by night to guide them at nighttime through the desert, a cloud by day. It's the presence of God. And so Christ is the presence of God, that he is our light. And that's why at this same feast in John chapter 8, look at verse 12, Jesus also wants to play off of this idea of light when he says again, speaking to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so what we're learning here is that Jesus, when he's going to head to the Feast of Booths, is doing it at the right time for the right reason to capitalize on the fact that this feast, the Feast of Booths, was to always point to Christ. And here at his first advent, he's going to show up at this Feast of Booths. By the way, John chapter 7, verse 2, the only place in the New Testament where it's mentioned, the only place in the entire, that's significant. That's why I wanted to take a moment and say, what is this all about? Why is this the only place in the New Testament where we read about the Feast of Booths? And so we see that this is amazing. This is, this is God at work. This is Christ showing up, and the Jews don't even see it. They, they want to kill him. They're blinded by their own sin. They're blinded by their own religious uh, rules. They're blinded by their own laws. They've added to God's law all this stuff, and Jesus is showing up, and he's like, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. The Feast of Booths, it's all about me. It's about me. And guess what? The Feast of Booths will be practiced again by you and I in the millennial kingdom. Turn to Zechariah chapter 14. It's in your Old Testament after the book of Daniel. There at the end and the minor prophets. This is something that we're told that you and I will participate and practice in the millennial kingdom. Zechariah was a prophet. He was a, a priest that was coming out of exile. So after Israel was 70 years in exile in Babylon, they come back. They come back out of this bondage. And when they initially get back, they rebuild the wall, Nehemiah. They start to kind of rebuild the city. Zerubbabel shows up, wants to do some work in the temple. Zechariah also talks about how the temple needs to be reconstructed there in Jerusalem to anticipate the coming of the Messiah. If we had time, we'd look at the whole chapter of Zechariah. It's a phenomenal chapter talking about the coming of the day of the Lord. That is the second coming when Christ comes back, wipes out all of his enemies. His feet land on the Mount of Olives. It splits in two. A river goes forth out into the Mediterranean River. All this incredible stuff is happening as he's setting up the millennial kingdom. And starting in verse 16, we read this. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem that go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, to keep the feast of booths. Well, there it is. Again, timing shows us this is a prophecy of the coming millennial kingdom. 
when Christ physically comes to earth as a man at his second coming, sets up his kingdom where he will reign, according to Revelation 19 and 20, for a thousand years. And when he does this, he will reinstitute this idea of keeping the feast of booths. Verse 17, and if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to the Feast of Booths. There it is a second time. And then a third time in verse 19. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. Three times at the end of Zechariah, we're told that those who are worshiping Christ, following Christ, fulfilling the kingdom of Christ physically on earth when he returns, will be practicing in one degree or another this, this feast of booths, which is for us today still pointing to the second advent. That's why that's just so cool. It's not just an Old Testament study. This is beyond the New Testament. This is when Christ comes back, this will be set up in commemoration of what he's already done as a memorial to Christ's coming. I don't know about you, I just think that's pretty cool. It's not every day that you're like, oh, we're going to practice the Feast of Booths in the Millennial Kingdom, that you even have that thought. But that's why this is an incredible uh, depiction of, of the, the Feast of Booths because it's fulfilled at the first advent when Christ says, I'm here. It'll be fulfilled again at the second advent when he comes back. All that to say, these feasts point to Jesus. These feasts remind us of God's faithfulness to us through salvation through God's faithfulness to us every day, sustaining grace, and to the future coming of Christ that we're still even waiting for as believers. And so here in this outline, we're just talking about the hard-heartedness of man. You would think after seeing all that, they would be like, this is awesome. But instead, they don't like him. They want to kill him. And then your next point in the outline says, the brothers who lacked belief in Jesus. Just skip down to verse 5. It says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Unbelievable that his own blood brothers, not only did the nation reject him, he came to his own people and they received him not, his own brothers would not receive him. And so let me just make a couple observations about verses 3 through 5. Here's the first observation I want to make. Number one, the heresy of the perpetual virginity of Mary. So well, Adam, how, how does that work into this whole thing? Well, look at it with me. It says in verse 3, so his brothers said to him, stop right there. Let me just first say that Jesus had brothers. That's important to make sure you're understanding because the Roman Catholic Church teaches that he did not. Because the Roman Catholic Church teaches in what they call the Immaculate Conception. Now, for many Protestants, they hear that Immaculate Conception and be like, oh, great, I love the Immaculate Conception. That's about Jesus, right? Wrong. In the Roman Catholic Church, that's about Mary. They would say that Mary was born without sin that there was an immaculate conception, that Mary was sinless, and that she remained sinless for her whole life, and that as a virgin, she gave birth to Jesus, but she did not give birth to anyone else, because if she gave birth to anyone else, she would have given birth to a sinner, and since she's sinless in that system, and Jesus is sinless in that system, she can't give birth to a sinner, or then she would be sinful. Make sense? And so the Roman Catholic Church has a heresy of this perpetual virginity of Mary, yet the Bible tells us with great clarity that Jesus had 
brothers. Not only did he have brothers, but he had brothers and sisters. In fact, in Matthew chapter 13, we learn their names. Their names in Matthew 13 are James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. All the Jews knew that. They knew that this was the carpenter's son. They knew the mother named Mary. They, they, they wondered why Jesus claimed who he was because they just thought he was a regular guy like you or me. And yet Jesus, they finally understood he's claiming to be God. And they said, how could this be? Because he's got his brother James and we know his brother Joseph and his brother Simon and his brother Judas and he's got his sisters here. And so if Jesus had brothers, then Mary did give birth to sinners. And if she gave birth to sinners, then she's not sinless which means she cannot be a co-redemptress to provide salvation for anybody, ever. That's heretical. And so we just want to make sure we're understanding here in the Bible, Jesus had his brothers has significance and showing us that it's only Christ that we worship, that it's only Christ who is sinless, that it's only Christ who provides salvation. Second observation I want to make is this, the strategy of Jesus's brothers. At the middle of verse 3, they say to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now keep in mind, verse 5 says they're not believers yet. So it's a little bit unclear then why they are suggesting this strategy. And there are a few theories about why these brothers wanted Jesus to go to Jerusalem. The first theory is the most grim one, and it would be that similar to Joseph's brothers, who had the coat of many colors, wanted him killed, that Jesus' brothers wanted him killed, so they're saying, yeah, 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 let's go to, let's go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill you. So that would be one proposition of why they wanted him to go there. Another one would be, another theory would be that just like the normal Jew, they wanted a political savior, and if Jesus became a political, physical savior, and they happened to be his brothers, that they would also get to reign with him in his physical kingdom. And so they wanted to have strings attached to him for political advantages. Another reason would simply be that they would say, look, I'm not so sure about your claim to be the Christ, but if we go to Jerusalem, which is the head of our religion, and all the scribes and all the Pharisees and all the scholars down there say you're Christ and it's legit, then we'll believe in you. But first, we need to know what all of the leaders of our religion says. And if they believe you, then we'll believe you. No doubt, part of what's going on is that the brothers want to see if Jesus will do his works, his miracles, in front of the crowds of the religious establishment of Jerusalem. I mean, think about it. It could be just as simple pragmatically as the brothers of Jesus thinking, we just lost a lot of people out of our ministry. At the end of chapter 6, when Jesus gave his teaching, many of the so-called disciples went away from him. And so they could be thinking, we're kind of down in our numbers. We need to beef up our ministry. Jesus, you got some great things going on. If you do that in Jerusalem, you're going to knock it out of the park big time. and Everybody's going to follow you. So let's take you down to Jerusalem and let you do your stuff there. The problem with this is they are focusing on opportunities that are external they're thinking about spectacular things. They're thinking about how Jerusalem would be crowded because of the Feast of Booths, and so that would be the ideal platform for Jesus to present himself for more followers. And let's just promote the program here, and let's perform, and surely our ministry will be thriving again. And if you want to be known for what you're doing, you've got to do it in front of the biggest crowd. My friends, many churches have reduced themselves to that strategy when it comes to church growth movements. I'm not saying I'm against church growth. I hope our church grows, right? But what I am saying is that a lot of churches reduce themselves to some type of show, some type of pomp, some type of grandiose 
method of drawing people. And Jesus was just never about that. When Jesus showed up, he was born in a stable in Bethlehem. Jesus grew up in a carpenter's household in Nazareth where nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Jesus walked around. He didn't so much mind the crowds. He did the same thing whether there was a crowd or no crowd. He talked to people that nobody would ever talk to. Jesus was about one-on-one individual discipleship. Jesus was about having conversations with the commoners. He was never about strategy, go big, and just put out the lights and do as many miracles as I can, and that's the way to do it. No, no, Jesus was about the heart. Jesus was about preaching the truth. Jesus was about confronting sin. Jesus was about loving people. Jesus was about teaching the Old Testament and explaining it to where they could understand it in a New Testament way. He's he's interested in them coming to him for the right reason. Jesus is interested in internal change, and he wants people to come to him for the gospel, not for anything else. Popularity, big crowds, all of that doesn't phase Christ. We better make sure it doesn't phase us as well. Well, we also see here, this next blank says, the impossibility of belief. So verse 5, again, his own brothers didn't believe in him. It's a little bit disappointing maybe uh, for Jesus to think about that, that, that they wouldn't believe in him. But you know what? Christ understood that his family wasn't just his half-blood brothers, but he says that his family is the church and that his, that his family are you and, and me if we're in Christ. Uh, that we learn this in Mark 3 when his family tried to approach him. They said he's out of his mind. And Jesus says, who is my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, and in another passage, and my sisters. And so we understand that Christ is all about reaching people with the gospel. Whether you're a half-blood brother to Christ is, does, does not get you in, right? Just because you're a half-brother to Jesus doesn't mean that you're saved. You could be the son of a preacher, Right? You could have an uncle who's in the missionary, who's a missionary. You, you could be, know somebody big time in the ministry. It means nothing. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says on this passage. He writes this, quote, The great scriptural doctrine, man's need of preventing and converting grace, stands out here as if written with a sunbeam. It becomes, to all who question, that doctrine to look at this passage and consider. Let them observe that seeing Christ's miracles, hearing Christ's teaching, living in Christ's own company were not enough to make men believers. The mere possession of spiritual privileges never yet made anyone a Christian. All is useless without effectual and applying work of God and the Holy Ghost. No wonder that our Lord said in another place, no man can come to me unless the Father which hath sent me draw him. In other words, it's all sovereign grace. Folks, this morning matters not your background, where you're from, what your relationship to anybody is. What matters is the grace of God to call you out of darkness into light, that you would look upon Christ, that you would see Christ in all of his glory, that you would turn from your sin. You and I were born with a hard heart. You could have been raised in the church. You could quote to me every book of the Bible. It means nothing until God changes your heart. So I hope, church, that what you're looking at isn't so much how, how much you know, but it's what you feel and believe about what you know that also changes. There ought to be an emotional response to the gospel of grace. Now, I'm not saying it's all about emotion. I'm just saying it's not all about knowledge. It's about knowledge and emotion together 
that God gives. I'm just saying if you've been changed, it's going to change your affections. And what you're going to want and desire is more of Christ, more of his beauty, more of his understanding in your life, because he's going to take your stone-cold heart and give you a heart of flesh. And when he gives you a heart of flesh, it changes a man. It causes him to do things that he would never do. Just last night, I was at a, a banquet with a, with, a, with a school event, and I was talking with this guy about my past career. And he looked at me and he said, why in the world would you abandon your job as a PA to be a pastor? As if that was the dumbest thing I could have ever done. You know, he could have counseled me a lot better. And I said, listen, the love of Christ changes a man. God gave me such a passion and desire to live for him through the preaching of the word of God. I cared not about my previous job. I didn't want to keep doing that for another day. I wanted to preach and teach and call people to Christ every moment of every day. And he's like, huh, that's nice. You know, so I didn't get very far with him, but I was praying that later after he went home, maybe he would just keep thinking, what, what, what was that all about? And so we're looking for change. This is what Jesus is looking for. He can change your heart. He can change the heart of your spouse. He can change the heart of your child. He can change the heart of your neighbor. He can change your heart. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, God, I need a softer heart. Call out to him and he will be there for you. Well, second thing, these next two are a lot quicker, but I want us to look for a moment here at the sovereign understanding and the timing of Christ. We've already kind of set this up about why did he come at the Feast of Booths. It's because your next point says Jesus knew the right time to come. He knew exactly when to come to the Feast of Booths. Verses 6, 8, and 9 say, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Verse 8 and 9, You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Now, when you read this text, it almost seems like they're saying, Hey, Jesus, come on, come on, we're going to the Feast of Booths. Come with us. And oh, by the way, Jesus was required to go to the Feast of Booths. Because he did keep the Old Testament law perfectly. Every male was supposed to go there for all three of these feasts. So he had to go. He just looks at them, though, and he says, I'm not going yet. You know, you guys go ahead. It kind of reminds me of what Jesus said to Mary in John chapter 2 at the wedding in Cana. Mary shows up to Jesus. We have no more wine. Jesus is like, what's that got to do with me? You know, and she's like, okay, you guys just do whatever he says. And then he turns the water into wine. So he still comes through, right? And it's a similar thing here where he's like, hey, you guys go ahead. And part of that is Jesus knows the right timing. When he says my hour has not yet fully come, he's talking about it's not fully time for me to go to the cross. It's not fully time for me to be crucified just yet. So I'm going to come on my timetable, my divine timetable, knowing what time it is I need to be there. What we're saying is this, Jesus knows all things. Jesus knows all hearts. Jesus knows the divine timetable to which he should operate because he is divine. Jesus knew the right time to come into the world. Jesus knew the right time to begin his public ministry. And Jesus knows the right time to go to the Feast of Booths. So what does that mean for you and me? It means this, Jesus knows the right time to bring certain things into your life. Jesus knows the right time for you to graduate. Jesus knows the right time for you to get a job. That would be today. Jesus knows the right time uh, for you to get married. He knows the right time for, for you to have a baby, to buy a home, to move or to stay put. Jesus knows the right time for us to build this building. He's in control of the timing of all things. And so if you're here this morning and you're getting impatient, don't be like one of Jesus' brothers saying, Jesus, come on. Come on, Jesus. 
Instead, you should be saying, hey, Jesus, let me adjust my timetable to your timetable. What are you doing, Lord? How can I be patient, Lord? How can I wait upon you, Lord? Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. So we're not here to rush ahead or wait behind. We want to walk in the light of Christ. We're to obey him and we're to worship him while we wait. We're to search the scriptures. We're to seek godly counsel. But just be reminded that God waited 430 years before he delivered Israel out of Egypt. It may seem like you're waiting your whole life, but it's worth the wait because God's way is always best. God always knows what he's doing. Trust in him. Your next blank says this. Jesus knew the main reason why many hated Christ. Verse 7 that we skipped says, the world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus is speaking to his brothers and he's saying, remember they're unbelievers at this point, and he's saying to them, the world cannot hate you. Well, why not? Why can't the world hate his brothers? Because his brothers are unbelievers. Unbelievers don't hate unbelievers. Not in the same category of why they hate believers. The world does not hate fellow unbelievers. The world hates believers. It is the true believers who are different. It is the true believers who have a, a moral compass based on the Bible. It is the believers who don't laugh at the dirty jokes or go to the dirty movies. It's the believers who are faithful to their spouses, faithful in keeping their accounts clean, faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the world cannot hate unbelievers because the world hates believers. And I want to ask why. Why is it that the world hates Christ? I mean, think about it. Does the world really hate Jesus because of the virgin birth? No. Does the world hate Jesus because the Bible teaches that he's the agent of creation? No. Does the world hate Jesus because he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Well, not according to verse 7. The reason in this context by which the world hates Jesus is told for us here, it hates me because, why? I testify about it, and its works are evil. The reason the world hates Jesus, according to verse 7, is because Jesus testifies that the works of the world are evil. What Jesus is saying here is that he is not afraid to call people out on their morality or on how they live. Jesus calls what the world does evil or wicked. Jesus doesn't say everyone can do their own thing. He doesn't say everybody has autonomy to do whatever they want with their thoughts and their bodies. Jesus doesn't say that if you don't do it his way, that you're somehow neutral or coming from a different culture or a different perspective. No, no, no. Jesus says that anything done outside of faith in him is evil. Not only is it unacceptable or unallowable, it is condemned as evil. What the world calls pleasurable, Jesus calls detestable. When the world calls you to express yourself, Jesus is calling you to deny yourself. What the world upholds as invaluable, Jesus sees as deplorable. Bottom line, the world hates what Jesus loves, and the world loves what Jesus hates. And so let me ask you this morning, how are you doing? If you call out somebody in their sin, the world will hate you for that. If you call something sin that the world calls okay, they're going to hate you for that. You're offending people left and right, and it's not so much that you hold on to Christ. It's because in Christ, 
as things happen, we have a responsibility to call sin, sin. Now, I'm not saying that your goal is to go around every day, sinner, sinner, sinner. But I am saying that God does use his law as a tutor to teach us of our need of Christ. And the object of any conversation is to point people to Christ. But how do they know they need Christ if they don't realize they're sinners? How are they going to see what they need to see if they don't become convicted through the Spirit of God because of the Word of God as it calls out things in their life? Listen to what J.C. Ryle says on this verse. He says, quote, Denounce the fashionable sins of the day and call on men to repent and walk consistently with God and thousands at once will be offended. Kind of feel like he's living in our time, right? Just call something sound that the world says, okay, everybody gets upset. They all will call you an ancient, legalistic, hating person. Just by saying, hey, this is a sin. This is what marriage is. This is a sin. This is what God says you ought to be doing in your marriage. This is a sin. This is called materialism. This is loving the world. This is called sacrificial giving with great joy because of what God's given to you. This is called disobeying your parents and do whatever you want because you know better. This is called obeying your parents, honoring them. This is called arguing because I'm upset. This is called giving a gentle answer that turns away wrath and pursuing reconciliation, asking for forgiveness. And so what we're seeing here is the idea that Jesus' sovereign understanding of what's going on and his timing is perfect. And we need to adjust our life to his life, even if it costs us the hate of the world. One last lesson, number three, a look at the opinions and the responses to Christ. Your next blank says the Jews wanted to kill him. We've already read that in verse 1. Verse 11 and 12 say the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. And uh, I'll get to that verse uh, 12 in a moment. But just let me stop at verse 10 and 11. They're looking for him. Why are they looking for him? Because they want to kill him. They're not looking for him because they love him. They're not looking for him because they want to learn from him. They're not looking for him because they really want to give him a second chance. No, no, at this time, they have decided we will kill Jesus. So that's why he shows up incognito. He does stand and proclaim truth, as we'll see as we continue in the chapter but they wanted to kill him. That's how the world treats him. That's how these unbelieving Jews treated him. And yet we see a second class of people here. The people, your next blank, the people wanted to debate about him. So some people want to kill him. Some people aren't quite there yet, but they're willing to debate about him. Verse 12, and there was much, uh, there was much muttering about him among the people. While someone said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. So this is like the ultimate debate. Is Jesus good or is he bad? The problem is that debate is kind of down here because we should be talking about is he God or is he not? And what they want to talk about is more of a second tier argument. Is he good or is he bad? Even the word good in this context means meeting a relatively high standard of quality. Is that, is that a worthy way to discuss Jesus? He's so much more than that. Right? It's not like, hey, is he a, is he a moral guy who, who is you know, a good man? The word good there means useful or beneficial. Well, let me tell you something this morning. Jesus is so much more than a good man. He's perfect. He's more than a man. He's God. He's more than useful. He's essential. He's more than beneficial. He's the Savior of the world. Who are we as fallen creatures to determine and to debate what it is we think about Jesus? 
Our job is not to, to judge Jesus. It's his job to judge the world. It's not our job to determine the value of Christ being good or bad, but it's Christ's job to take that which is sinful and to make it holy through his sacrifice on the cross for lost and dying sinners like you and like me. I mean, maybe the only good thing about the debate is at least it is binary, good or bad. So there's, you know, in today's world, there's a whole spectrum of like, well, you can think anything you want to think about Jesus. And he, at least here in verse 12, there's the direction towards good and the direction towards bad. But if your direction is toward good this morning, let's just say your compass is like, yeah, I think Jesus is a good man. Then you need to see him as Christ because you cannot be a good man and deceive the world by saying the only way of salvation is through Christ. That's not good. That's actually deceptive unless it's true. And if it is true, if Jesus really is the Christ, if he is the Messiah, if he is the only way to heaven, then he's so much more than good. He's God. And so I'm calling you this morning out of this debate as is he good or bad to say, is he God or is he not? Is he always truthful or he's never truthful? Because that's the decision that needs to be made in order to see Christ for who he really is. One last observation here in verse 13 and yet no one spoke openly of him. For the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Doesn't that sound like today? People scared to speak up. They're scared to speak out. People are scared of the persecution of the Jews. People are scared today to speak about Christ or the Bible. They're, they're scared to say what they think about morality. People are scared to talk truth about sin and its consequences. Maybe it's hard for you to stand up for Christ in the workplace. Maybe it's difficult for you to stand on your, on your Bible in the public school where you attend. Maybe it's intimidating for you to go against the grain for the cause of Christ. Well, listen to me. Don't expect the world to love you for one minute. Right? The world hates your guts because you're with Christ. So don't wait for the right moment when everybody's going to say, tell us more. Tell us more about Jesus. You stand every moment for Christ, realizing, John 15, 18, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. But you know what? I'd rather stand with Jesus than to fall with the devil. I'd rather uphold God's word than to drop into hell. I'd rather be hated by the world than praised by demons. I don't know about you, but I want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to follow him wherever he goes. I want to abandon all my wants and all my desires to lift high the name of Jesus, who is the purpose of my life. And so let me ask you this morning, are you a follower of Jesus? I want to ask you this morning, I'm not talking about your family. I'm not talking about your brother or your sister. I'm not talking about your mom or your dad. I'm asking you this morning, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you repented of your sins? Do you realize that just as the Feast of Booths points directly to Jesus Christ, so does everything else in your life? I mean, general creation points to Christ. Special revelation spells it out for us with great clarity that Jesus came, he died, and he was raised from the dead. And the good news is Jesus is calling sinners to himself every moment of every day. And even though his brothers were unbelievers, did you know they came to saving faith? A little bit later in his life, after the resurrection, for sure, these brothers came to saving faith. Two of them wrote books in the Bible. James wrote James, and Jude wrote Jude. James became a leader in the Jerusalem church. And so I'm calling you 
out this morning of darkness into light. Maybe you've been an unbeliever. Maybe you've been close to the things of God, but you've never truly been born again. See Christ as the light of the world. See Christ as the only one who can give living water. And as you think about that, you can maybe think about these three take-home questions there at the end of your notes. How does, how does the Feast of Booths help you see Christ? I hope that after this message, or these two messages, every time you think about Feast of Booths, you'll think about, wait a second, there's a future. There's a future. Christ is coming back. Those tabernacles point to the fact that it's temporary here. It's permanent in heaven. And Christ spoke about the Feast of Booths at the Feast of Booths, that he is light and that he is also uh, the, the giver of living water. Number two, how can you learn from seeing Jesus and his divine timetable? Hopefully you're encouraged that Jesus does what he wants, when he wants. And so that's true for you in your life. Jesus is going to show up when he wants, as he wants in your own life. Trust in him. Wait for him. Be patient. Number three, are you afraid to speak openly of Jesus? These people were. They hated him. They debated about him. And they were afraid to talk about him. I hope that's not true of you. Friend, I hope that today you'd be willing to share the gospel with your neighbor, with your coworker at Christmas time as your family gathers, that you'd be more than willing to say, hey, can we just open Luke chapter 2? Read the Christmas story, be reminded about what it's all about, because may we never be ashamed to speak of Christ. And I hope these are some lessons that you can learn and uh, that the Holy Spirit would apply on your own heart as we contemplate Jesus and the Feast of Booths. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for opportunity to dive deep this morning into John 7, a little bit of a Bible study this morning as we want to have a better understanding of these various feasts and how they all point to Jesus God, we're kind of amazed that the Feast of Booths will be practiced again in the millennium. And so I pray that that would give us great hope today to realize that we're just temporary. Our lives on earth are just temporary. The houses we live in are like these booths and like these tabernacles. They will not stand forever. But there's a home for us in heaven. There is a, a place that is prepared not by the hands of men, but by God himself, that we could dwell with Christ forever and ever and ever. And so I pray that today, God, you would draw sinners out of darkness into light and that you would encourage those who are already in Christ to be filled with the Spirit, to operate out of the power of your word working through the Spirit in our lives, that we would leave this place ready to speak openly and often about the glories of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.